Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Elayla Latif. I'm David Jenkins. I'm Josh Slater Williams. On the show this week, 44 years after the original, Halloween finally ends. A lovable reptile charms the residents of New York in Lyle Lyle Crocodile. And on Film Club, it's a celebration of the restoration of 1987's The Lost Boys. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, Josh, the two of us need no introduction. We have been uh, firm internet pals for many years and now IRL pals. For those who don't know who you are, could you explain exactly what it is that you do? What a loaded question. Uh, I am a freelance culture writer on film, uh, TV and music for Little White Lies, among others, including the BFI Sight and Sound, Dazed, ID at the moment during London Film Festival, a couple of places, Line of Best Fit. Um, yeah, and this is uh, my first time on the podcast. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah, and you're here What's for an internet our, our kind of Oh, basically just Josh and I spend all of our time DMing each other. <laughs> ah, and that's before you'd met met as as in 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 real life yeah yeah josh is actually the person that i kind of sync up with the most in terms of all of the places that we write we have a, we have kind of quite similar outlets but yeah we are all absolutely exhausted on this podcast because it is the middle of um, lff and not much sleep has been had david you're also working on the new issue yeah you're still yeah. able to get a bit of lff in? well um not really i'm i'm sort of if you can hear a little bit of croak in my voice, yeah, that's that's the the the, the sort of late nights, early mornings kicking in. Work, working hard on the new issue to get it out on deadline, which our sort of main production time sort of happens to sync up almost exactly with London Film Festival. So I haven't really been able to dip in as much as I'd have liked to, to be honest. I've missed quite a fair few things that I want to that I'd, that I'd really really keen to see. I think we're going to do a little London Film Festival chat now, so I'm actually going to be listening to what you you guys have actually seen and and be jotting that down because uh yeah i i'm, I'm still kind of going to be playing catch up on that but one thing to note also is that this is the week where well next week is when decision to leave comes out which is the new park chan wook film which is on, on the cover of our uh, current issue in which you your, your your bad selves both have writing in that so there's there's three three good reasons to to urge people to go out and pick that up now uh, Park Chan Wook's actually going to be in London for the London Film Festival. Uh, uh, he's arriving today 
well, at, at, at time of this recording, I think he's probably sort of winging his way over because he's just been in New York. So, like, hopefully he'll actually get to see some of the issues. Someone might, you know, sneak him a copy. Um, yeah, we'll see. Funny you mentioned that, David, because I happen to know that Josh is actually talking to him during the London Film Festival. I've heard he's absolutely wonderful to interview, so I'm actually pretty jealous. I'm deep in kind of junket mode myself, but I haven't really had a chance to ever talk to Park Chan-wook. So yeah, jealous of that one, Josh. But aside from that, what have been your highlights? You're doing interviews, you're seeing a lot of films though as well, I imagine. Well, it's always that thing during the London Film Festival where I feel like I'm seeing a lot of films and then as soon as I skip something to go do an interview i feel like i'm not seeing anything uh based on twitter twitter hype but uh yeah i've seen a lot of good stuff this year i don't really think i think being quite unfortunate the only things i've not really liked have just been a bit mediocre rather than outright terrible yeah i've been speaking to some great filmmakers like manuela martelli who's the debut director of this chilean film called 1976 which is set during the pinochet dictatorship and follows a bourgeois housewife who sort of accidentally becomes a spy of sorts which I really, really enjoyed. Let's say some other highlights I have, a couple of them are kind of holdovers from like festivals like Venice and Locarno, but they would include Blue Jean, which is set during 80s Thatcherite Britain when Section 28's coming in. And uh, Piaf, which is this, uh, it's a weird one to describe. Uh, it's like, it's like a body horror version of Secretary, I would say. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's a film about like a kind of a sudden growth of appendage, in this case, a horsetail for this like introverted young woman but instead of doing instead of yeah instead of doing a Cronenbergian this this is this is messing up my life sort of thing it's kind of explores how this might actually empower this person and the tale itself is almost like a sexual organ in a way so it's this kind of weird light on plot but heavy on kind of atmosphere strange body horror snm thing which is is really really good actually i forget if it's got any screenings left at the festival by the time this uh, podcast will go up but i thoroughly recommend people check that out it possibly might be on bfi player don't hold me to that uh yeah snm body horror that sounds uh very up my street also uh, sorry uh one last one i would like to mention is brother which is from director clement virgo which might be my favorite film of the festival it's it documents the story it's time hopping portrait of two west indian canadian brothers in toronto following them from childhood to the start of the 2000s and kind of exploring how uh you know mental illness grief and like the societal structures that play in the city kind of almost uh laser focused on either putting them in jail or putting them in the ground it's it's got an absolutely fantastic performance from a british actor aaron pierre who was in uh, barry jenkins the underground railroad and and like Shyamalan's old last year so I, that would be my biggest recommendation of this festival. Wow, that's quite the range that that guy has. Kind of like, you know, harrowing Barry Jenkins romance drama, mid-sized sedan in Mids- old. Mid-sized sedan, yep. A, a star is being born there. But yeah, we've, there is a kind of dark cloud over this festival, though. Josh, I know that you the Edinburgh Film Festival is something that's quite important to you. And so that must have been, you know, tough news to to hear of what's happening with CMI and that, you know, there's possibly, the, the, there's this might be the end for that festival. Yeah, so for a, a bit of context for anyone who hasn't heard, the Centre of the Moving Image, uh, which is based in Scotland, which is this uh, charity body that oversees the venues, uh, Edinburgh Filmhouse and uh, the Belmont Filmhouse in Aberdeen, but is also in charge of the Edinburgh International Film Festival, which just celebrated its 75th year over the summer. For those who don't know, Edinburgh Film Festival is the world's longest... Uh, it's not necessarily the world's oldest film festival, but it's the world's... It's the film festival that's continually rung for the longest. 
It's never taken a break. Even during COVID, it was one of the first film festivals to experiment with a small digital program that people could access over that respective summer. So what happened on uh, last Thursday, out of the blue, by all accounts, the organisation went into administration. So all action for the the respective film houses and the film festival terminated immediately. Over, I think it's roughly 102 people lost their jobs immediately. By all accounts, there was no kind of warning that this might be on the way. So it's a terrible loss, you know, absolutely devastating for those people. Extremely sad, rage-inducing as well, because I'm slightly concerned that the gravity of the situation has been slightly underplayed in, in, in more of a, a UK national conversation. I think that there's a danger in kind of thinking of this as like a, a region-specific, you know, oh, well, the, these things happen. You, could, you, you know, people were equated to a perfect storm of like the cost of living crisis and COVID. And not to say those are not factors in why the organisation was struggling, but... There needs to be a greater deal of emergency in terms of preserving these cultural spaces for means of access, for means of education. I know both film houses ran loads of like educational services for students, children, and worked with like young aspiring filmmakers. My understanding that the loss of the Belmont Film House means there's like no accessible screenings for anyone who might you know no your regular sorts of like hard of hearing screenings, that those sorts of things. Yeah, so without you know without going into any potentially libelous accusations about, you know, who's to blame for all this. I just want to, you know, I think it's important that publications such as Little White Lies kind of get behind, you know, throwing their support for hopefully some sort of um, revival of these cultural bodies. And I'm ple- I have been pleased to see in the last few days a, a lot of prominent filmmakers come out in support of the festival and, you know, getting, you know, then the people who've lost their jobs and getting things back on track. Uh, director Ben Sharrock, who made Limbo, he had a particularly eloquent thread on the impact of Filmhouse on his, uh, uh, you know, his filmic education. How he wouldn't have any, he wouldn't be where he was without the film festival. And he had some, you know, very astute thoughts on, you know, what should arguably be done in terms of reforming an institution like that. And similarly, Andrew Partridge, who's the organisation runner of. Anime Limited and also the Festival Scotland Loves Anime, the Edinburgh Wing, which was set to run at Filmhouse this October, has now moved to Cameo. He produced a thread kind of going going through the detail about the kind of procedures and all the costs about what was involved with getting that transferred to an entirely new venue. And I would say anyone who has any sort of interest in film exhibition, programming, or I guess anime, um, should like go look up Andrew Potch's thread on that because it's really it's really interesting and kind of gets across just the domino effect of the, of this. It's not just an Edinburgh thing, how it affects you know the people directly involved, how it affects communities, how it affects organisations who are not based in the city. It's it's a really good thread about um, the ripple effects. And uh, I'm going to stop rambling here, but I just I, I just thought it was important to like. Express some solidarity with the with the people who've lost the work there. Yeah, certainly. And there's you know several of you know friends of the podcast and people that work with Little White Lies have you know been directly affected and lost their jobs. So you know it's it's kind of a personal thing for all of us, as well as just being you know deeply sad. And I'm sure David, you were also yeah very I mean, bummed out. You know, I, I don't want to sort of be be standing quietly aside. I you know I I do I do I, I'm I'm not just in in general. I'm not a person who who kind of like is is very militant over social media I, I you know i don't believe in, in in anything that that might be construed as being performative but like every i you know i've obviously been sort of watching this play out i've been talking to people about it um 
you know the the news itself when it dropped was was completely devastating and from 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 my perspective it was the kind of like how, how you know you you you, you it it kind of came from nowhere specifically especially cuz like there really wasn't a, a sort of public sense that these cinemas would were kind of doing badly to the point of their instant extinction or and same goes of the, the Edinburgh Film Festival which uh, having spoken to to various people about that including people involving involved in running the festival it, you know internally it was deemed quite a reasonable success i mean i'm sure that there are conversations being had in in the kind of you know higher echelons of 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 the film community people you know the, with, with between sort of decision makers people with with access to funds and i think every effort will be made to 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 preserve edinburgh but yeah i think it just all sort of boils down to a hope that you know, just to echo what Josh was saying, people are able to see beyond a kind of hard bottom line and actually try try and sort of comprehend the value of these festivals over this this kind of hard, the hard costs. You know, like what what actually people are getting out of it and what what they actually the services they actually provide uh, beyond revenue. So you know, as, as you say, in this climate, those those questions are are even tougher than they than they once were but it feels like there's still there's probably there's still time for for the for, for edinburgh to 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 be revived for next year let's have every every everything crossed that that happens and that those conversations are not just kind of like starting but are kind of well underway yeah i, w- I would say half salas ross who you know writes for little white lies and has been on this podcast has she was one of the people that was directly affected and lost her job and she she's just got a wonderful thread if anybody wants to look that up all about kind of the community engagement and like actually why this you know that sort of space is so much more than just a place to watch a film i feel it, it does feel a bit strange going on for something so serious to something that is fundamentally quite silly but we should get started on halloween ends Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our SETI HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Four years after the events of Halloween Kills, Laurie is living with her granddaughter Alison. Michael Myers hasn't been seen since his last brutal rampage and Laurie has decided to liberate herself from fear and embrace life. But when a young man, Corey, is accused of killing a boy he was babysitting, it forces Laurie to confront evil once and for all. So, I mean, it does. It, it was quite a surprise at the beginning of this film. You feel like any one of these slasher movies kind of needs to start with a kind of self-contained kill, as uh, so many of these things do. But we're kind of set up from the beginning that Michael Myers is not going to appear for a while. So what they do instead, I think I was sat next to you, David. I did gasp and jump out of my seat. I was quite impressed by uh, how inventive it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to add some context to this, so like I, I uh, my experience of the Halloween franchise heretofore is the original John Carpenter, which I've seen numerous times, and I would say I would say I like I I like it. I don't, it's not a film I, I necessarily love. I can see why it's an important film rather than one that is, is maybe like great, but like, and I, I've seen Season of the Witch. Underrated. <laughs> and that's it prior to this. So like this, that was my, that was, this was, this was my, uh, you know, baptism of fire. So I, 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 I ended up knowing that I was going to be set to, to be talking about Halloween Ends. I 
speed watched the David Gordon Green new trilogy, which has appeared after two films, two rebooted films by Rob Zombie, which take a slightly different timeline. And then you have the Halloween H2O kind of ironic meta um, Scream-esque versions, which appeared just just at the sort of end of the 90s. It's a really handy flowchart on Wikipedia, actually, which which gives you the sort of how all these films are connected to one another and the timelines that they go on. Because this this timeline ignores every other Halloween film and is, is just linked to the first one. So it's kind of, it's purely reacting to the, the John Carpenter one and like the way it's made and the, 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 the intertitles and the music and the tone and the style of uh, everything is kind of geared towards homage to the, to the Carpenter version. It's very much in that tenor. Unlike the Rob, I mean, I haven't seen the Rob Zombie version, but like I've seen Rob Zombie movies and I can't imagine that he's done them in, in any other way than his own kind of garish new metal way. Anyway, so yeah, yes. actually, I mean, it was kind of more self... It was actually pretty dour, his version on it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was less fun. It, I d- they're I the mean, least I, fun I, Rob Zombie I know, movies. I know that there are some, some Rob Zombie hardcore out there, so I don't want to besmirch his good name. But like, yeah, so like... Um, so this new trilogy... Uh, I, I watched the first one thinking, oh yeah, no, this, I, I'm sure, I'm sure that this had some good reviews, but I didn't really, I thought it was rubbish. And then the second one, Halloween Kills, was like absolutely abysmal, like one of the worst. And I, and I know later you've, you've, you said that you quite like Kills, but you know, maybe, maybe that's for another day. But yeah, and so, so I, I was entering into this film at like, it was that sort of thing of like going between the two poles of, can this possibly be worse? Or oh my god, it, if it is worse, I'm in for I'm in for a ride. Like, I mean, this is gonna this has got to be so bad. I mean, it's the third film in a trilogy. They've probably dashed it off as a kind of contractual obligation. But what actually seems to have happened is like uh, Blumhouse, or the production company, have have said to David Gold Green, "This is purely speculative, by the way, lawyers. So don't come after me for this." They've said, "Okay, crank out two crowd pleasers." with like some gory kills that we can put in the trailer. And then for the third one, you can, you can muck about and do what you want. And so like, I, I feel that David Gordon Green is like director for hire on the first two, where he's like, you know, he's, he's got a brief, he's, he's, he's working for clients, he's getting sign off, etc. This third one, he's, this is, this is the day, this is the David Gordon Green film. And, and to my surprise and delight, I actually thought the film was, decent to 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 good like um you know actually sort of one of the better horror films i've seen in a long time getting back to your question in a very roundabout way yes this opening gambit where you actually you see this this um episode in this sort of tragic episode in this you know teenager's life unfold and 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 sort of turn him down a kind of path of evil is interesting i think the reason why this film works the the previous two don't is because yeah, as you say, Michael Myers is a, is very much a kind of background spectral presence in this. Whereas in the second one, he's the main character. So there's, there is like literally no reason to be scared. All you're doing is watching these horrible, horrible murder scenes. So yeah, he's in the background and his and he, he kind of exudes this presence and influence on the town rather than actually being there and doing bad shit. So there, there is a sort of scary sense of like, oh God, they're trying to extend the franchise by making a kind of, uh, you know, son of son of Michael Myers thing, but like, you know, it doesn't quite go that direction without trying to spoiling it. So yeah, I, I, 
I'll go into maybe we, I'll, I'll, I'll give I'll pass the baton to Josh. But yeah, I was I was impressed with this film. Uh, I will clarify just for any uh, people who might be listening and freaking out about spoilers. He is not literally the son of Michael Myers. That is no, no, no. When I said son of Michael Myers, yes. I meant I, that was that was done in, in yes. inverted quote marks that you couldn't see. Yeah, it sort of, it sort of reminded me of a sort of Renfield relationship in a, in a little way. Anyway, um, so yeah, what, I was very surprised. I, I also found much to appreciate with this film purely because I was surprised that I was surprised by a Halloween, a Halloween film in 2022. And one strange pop culture artifact that I was strangely reminded of was the, the video game Metal Gear Solid 2, <laughs> so, uh, which came out in 2001. And is obviously was obviously a sequel to a mega hit video game, and in it, all its advertising kind of pushed you know this is the return of the character Solid Snake, etc. And you know the opening of that game does sort of support that. But then the surprising twist that many gamers found, uh, much to many's outrage, is that Solid Snake is not lead character. He it, the lead character is actually some young upstart named Raiden, who everyone apparently apparently hated at the time. Um, so this. I was strangely reminded of that, where, where yeah, it's it's not a story about Michael. It's a story about this this young man who, you know, uh, I yeah, I don't want to spoil the opening sequence too much, but yeah, he's impl- he's implicated in a in a murder that he didn't necessarily uh, commit, and it then f- jumps forward three years to twenty twenty two. He you know he got off on those charges, but he's sort of like he's in, in the absence of Michael Myers who. You got away at the end of the second film. I feel like it's impossible to talk about this film without spoiling the end of Halloween Kills. So, so the stakes. Oh, yeah, yeah you've yeah. got to but, assume it's it, yeah. you know yeah. everybody's uh, you know, everybody's the, the got very, to be up to date. The very they existence listen. of this film, yeah, spoils the end of Halloween Two. So yeah, yeah, just just because it's only a year old, but yeah, the status quo is that at the end of that, you know, Michael killed the angry mob who were after him, and also killed uh, Laurie's daughter, who was played by Judy Greer, who was sadly missed uh, from this cast. I will say. But anyway, so in the absence of Michael, who wasn't apprehended, he hasn't been seen since the town of Haddonfield is sort of how they position the film is that in the absence of that boogeyman, they find they're finding another one uh, for not necessarily for closure because they can't get the closure from the Michael murders. But he's sort of like the the, the target of fit or physical abuse in some cases, a constant derogatory comments. You know, he's just, just trying to get on with his life. The only work he can get is at like an auto shop, which it turns out is run by his own father. And yeah, for, for I would say nearly 40 minutes, this is a very strange it, it, horror, especially for this franchise. It's not, I wouldn't call it a slasher film for the first 40 minutes at all. It's almost like this curious character study of two young kind of lost souls. The other one being Laurie Strode's granddaughter, Alison, who has her own kind of... Um, I hesitate to say trauma because I know everyone's sick of trauma in reference to these movies, <laughs> but who has this own kind of traumatic weight bearing down on her from the loss of her mother and father in the previous two movies and all the all the stuff that went on. Uh, but she's now working as a nurse. Laurie sort of kind of instigates a meeting between these two young people and they kind of get to know each other. And I was very surprised, I mentioned this to Layla after the screen, I was very surprised to be reminded of an upcoming film that I'm sure you're going to be covering uh, called Bones and All by Luca Guadagnino. Uh, mm. I've missed uh, also def- David def- Gordon pronounced. Green. <laughs> yes, I'm going to say David Gordon Green is actually has a small role in uh, that film. I will say his scene in that is creepier than anything in this film. But I was strangely reminded of that in the, that the film for a while becomes this sort of like young, messed up couple kind of getting involved with very violent acts, and 
I was, and Michael is sort of there. I don't think Michael Myers appears in this film for at least 40 minutes. Uh, at a certain point, I was wondering if they had pulled a season of The Witch and just not put him in the movie <laughs> at all. As David alluded to, this does feel more like a... I don't know if you, if you can even call anything a classic David Gordon Green film anymore because he's some, become such a hard director to get a handle on, but it did seem more in the vein of his earlier films like All the Real Girls, in a way, albeit with you know a lot more uh, murder and uh, gory, stabby, stabby. Yeah, I mean, I will say I I liked Halloween Kills. I hated the first David Gordon Halloween. I just thought that sort of empty girl boss triumph at the end was like legitimately sickening. But watching Halloween Kills, I was kind of reminded of something that I think Elena Lazek once said, where like sometimes if it's not working for you as a horror movie, you should try and engage with it as a comedy. And I generally kind of settled into that just being actually a really fun parody movie of uh, kind of almost like a scary movie thing and I assumed we were getting more of the same with this but as much as you say that this is like a kind of very David Gordon Green like the tone of these three movies is absolutely wild I would be if you didn't know I don't think you would guess that these were those three films were made by the same person well that's I think that's what's so interesting about this film is that it somehow takes the kind of awfulness of the second one and parlays it into in in, in, in takes sort of some maybe tiny seed of truth about this idea of like collective trauma or like you know this 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 desire to to immerse yourself in the in these lies and and conspiracy theories and have these kind of folk demons things things that you kind of hate as a way to kind of get you through the day and and it kind of takes them and run and runs with that idea and yeah as you say it's like this the the thing that this film has that the the first two dozen is like you know it has it has like basic storytelling logic it has like Mm -hmm. characters who who progress in a way that seems like this this that 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 feels credible and authentic and it's working on a much smaller in more intimate scale you know it, it it's doing things that like the other two just completely ignored at the expense of these kind of grand histrionics and big, you know, gigantic themes that that are supposed to to sort of connect with the with the zeitgeist. Whereas, you know, this this you know that the, the, I I, f- I found the end of the film like very moving actually. Um, and Corey's journey and his kind of his, you know his, you know there is you know there is a kind of like you know to 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 sort of make the connection there is this kind of like almost sort of Darth Vader arc to his, to his, to his life where he goes from like the sort of the, the uncorrupted youth of Anakin and then, you know, just becomes, it becomes this monster. Uh, but I, I think that the, the thing that really, really kind of bring, takes you through the film is that you, that, that, that David Gordon Green is actually, and, uh, and the writers are doing something where you don't necessarily like, you know, you, you don't, you're not complicit in this idea of him being the boogeyman. In in the same way you are with Michael Myers, who is just this monomaniacal, pure evil kill machine, they say it over and over again. He's just pure evil. It's like, well, you know, what what's the how how is that interesting? You know, like whereas you have a guy here who is like, you know, it is Jekyll and Hyde, and you know, he is he is you know he's able to be charming and lovely, and you know has these kind of very romantic scenes, and then he will go off and put this put his put his scarecrow mask on and do do some bad stuff and. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, it. it I was trying to think. There must. There can't be many third horror fran like part three of a horror franchise as good as this. 
There's a few late in life good ones. The final, final destination one is pretty good. Yeah, I maybe Final five? Station Three is 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 quite good. Um, it's because uh, there's one that it's like that the, the the there is a kind of a, a Night of the Living Dead trilogy from like the 80s and 90s, the new ones, and there's actually Night of the Living Dead Three, which is this kind of it is like a that is basically they do like a Romeo and Juliet zombies with sort of like metal fetish s&m and that that's really good and 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 that actually really reminded me of this i would clarify do you mean return of the living dead that's it return yes. of the living yes. dead not light of the living dead yes. so it's yeah. the return of the living dead three which is very good although on that note if we uh consider the first three their own standalone thing i would cite romero's day of the dead as a very good verdict yes no yeah you're right actually the the the, the dead films are the only ones who are, have been doing do rocking that third part of the trilogy quality yeah. in the and, past uh, so. and i uh i know nightmare on elm street free dream warriors has a lot of fans so i'll stick up for that even though i've not actually seen it but I'll, I'll i stand it. corrected it's almost like there's no bad third of trilogy <laughs> no uh not, not but yeah i mean i i i kind of see what you mean but i think you're coming to it with a little bit of a kind of better will than i do because to me i I, every so much of it just felt like contractual obligation more from the actors it seemed like very they're quite infrequently all together it seemed like everybody was like i'll give you five days but then he did find this like really talented guy rohan campbell who looks exactly like the love child of michael rooker and uh, caleb landry jones and that thread sort of compensates for the fact that i think jamie lee curtis is like absolutely dreadful at this oh i i beg to differ i thought this was like you know this if if this was you know she could have oscar buzz for this i thought like she was great this okay well you know let's take this disagree we'll we'll, take this to the street as well let's go let's go and get like a, a a a a coal scuttle or whatever it's called and whack each other in the streets in the with <laughs> uh, before we wrap up um uh josh is there anything else you want to point out i mean are we impressed with at least kind of the grisly side of things yeah that links to my point i found as i say i i'm not sure how much i necessarily thought this was a very good movie or anything um but i do find it a fascinating one i will say though i appreciate it more as like dark drama than horror movie i outside of that opening set piece i was not especially taken with the act scenes that are actually meant to be scary in a way, or the, the suspense set pieces. I, you know, I, lo- I, I love horror films. I do get a kick out of, you know, uh, gore and whatnot. And there's the odd fun thing there, but I don't want to say don't go see it if you don't, if you're looking to, but I would not go into this expecting a lot of jump scares, a lot of, I would say if you liked Halloween kills, you're probably not going to like this one, which also seems to have been supported by Layla's assessment here. But, but then but uh, then nobody in their right minds likes Halloween kills, so it's it's win win. Layla's right there, David. That, that's what <laughs> that's why I'm saying it. <laughs> but let's get some scores on it because we've got some other stuff to get to. Uh David, do you want to go first? Yeah, so into anticipation one, of course, minus one, minus five maybe. Um you know I was expecting a bad time. Um and uh enjoyment i would say probably you know I, it's like three and a half you know i know we, we're not allowed halves but i'd make i'd maybe even teeter that up to a four um and then and maybe in retrospect a three um you know i it was i you know i 
I think my enjoyment was was augmented by the fact that it was one of those things that had I had I had I had a higher anticipation, it probably would have been threes across the board. But because my anticipation was so low, that that there was a kind of pleasant surprise aspect, which maybe nudged enjoyment up a bit further. So there you go. Like that you can't even in one sentence give David Gordon Green a full compliment. <laughs> Josh, what about you? Uh, anticipation one, I did not have a good time of Halloween Kills. I don't have an especially tr- strong attachment to this franchise outside of Carpenter's one and Season of the Witch. Enjoyment three, I was very pleasantly surprised to be so surprised. And for the whole first hour, I was... I genuinely did not know where this was going, frankly, and that was that was fun. Uh, in retrospect, uh, I would say three slash two and a half because I feel like the third act kind of it goes into the stuff that I wasn't so keen on. But I would recommend this definitely because I have not had a horror film experience quite like it at the cinema in a long time. Uh, yeah, probably for me one in anticipation again as much as like the thing with halloween kills is that i thought it was really a fun parody that's not what they were trying to do but that was just like the level of appreciation that i had for it and then yeah i kind of feel about this film the same way i feel about venom so in enjoyment and in anticipation both ones and fives simultaneously like it's quite nice to be completely bewildered but i don't know whether that actually means it's good but it's also, it's not boring. And that's <laughs> something to say in this very kind of oversaturated horror market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Decision to Leave is the latest masterwork from Park Chan-wook, the filmmaker behind such modern classics as Old Boy and The Handmaiden. This twisted, passionate and surprising love story expertly blends together elements of romantic thriller, noir, black comedy and crime procedural, all to intoxicating effect. Critically adored at festivals around the world, the film saw Park won Best Director at the 2022 Cannes Film Festival and has been awarded a five-star review by Little White Lies. Decision to Leave previews in cinemas nationwide from October 15th and is on general release from October 21st. Book tickets now at movie.com slash decision to leave or via your local cinema. Decision to Leave is a movie release. Following the title Reptile, who lives in a house on East 88th Street in New York City, 
Lyle enjoys helping the Prim family with everyday chores and playing the neighbourhood kids, but one neighbour insists that Lyle belongs in a zoo. Mr Grumps and his cat Loretta do not like crocodiles, and Lyle tries to prove that he's not as bad as others might think. So Josh, most of what people kind of knew about this film before it came out was this like really bizarre photo of Javier Bardem uh, in costume as uh, as his friend Hector P. Valenti. Did that kind did the film kind of live up to the weird and wonderful image that that was? I was very pleasantly surprised by this film. <laughs> uh, yeah, so just, just to clarify, this is obviously pure family film. There's no like no attempts at like uh, elevated gravitas like uh, Halloween Kills, which is also a family film doing the same thing. Uh, but yeah, I, I was very pleasantly surprised by this after slightly dreading having to go see it for the podcast. Uh, after my only real exposure to this, because I was not familiar with the children's book it's based on, uh, were the big tube ads with like uh, Javier Bardem, Constance Wu, a child actor, I'm sorry, I forget your name, and Scoot McNary cr- crossing the sidewalk with uh, Lyle. And I was just baffled by the fact that they sp- felt the need to to highlight that a- a Javier Bardem was an Oscar winner as though that was going to be a selling point uh, for this particular film. On that note, I was pleased by how committed he was to the bit. Yeah, it's just a very nice little family film where everyone's putting in the effort. It's not annoyingly ironic or like you know wink winking about everything it's like it's sincere taking its premise sincerely and i thought the effects on the crocodile were actually very good uh it's integration with the human actors uh less so with the cat who keeps getting in peril but yeah it, it kind of pleasantly reminded me of something like Stuart little which i think it does resemble a lot my only re- major misgiving is that the person who plays the singing crocodile, uh, Sean Mendes, is a pop star whose music, when I've encountered it, I have absolutely despised. And I don't really get along with his voice. So that was a bit of a stumbling block occasionally. But uh, otherwise, I found this surprisingly enjoyable. David, you, you've had not a great year in terms of children's films because you hated Sonic and you hated... Um, uh, what was the last one that we did? Minions. Min- Minions that was not... Too, a, yeah. You were a bigger fan of that. Yeah. yeah, and with a young child, you have to go and see these both, things. Yeah, so. both both sequels. So yeah, um, but yeah, no, I I I was sort of like going to this, not really knowing what was going to happen. So yeah, I do take my daughter, age four, to to these screenings wherever possible. And this was something of a kind of you know new horizon for her in that she has been a sort of hardcore animation focus of of her, of her viewing. So, so doing the live action anima- animation, which I, we we tried, I think we tried to take her to see Clifford the Red, Big Red Dog, but we didn't actually. We 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 missed that one in the end, so that we didn't have that precedent. I understand that's actually quite a similar. I haven't seen Clifford, but I understand that 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 is quite similar in sort of style and tone. But it but it was a spectacular success, and she was singing Top of the World for the rest of the day, and. Um, uh, she was dancing to all the songs in the cinema. She every time a song came on, she would sort of stand up and and do a little kind of bop, which was uh, which even if you sort of got one eye on the screen, it, it does it does lift the experience of, of 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 seeing a movie like this, that you know that someone is getting so much enjoyment out of it. Um, which is not to say that I wasn't also. I agree with you on Shawn Mendes' kind of whiny voice. I was I, I was kind of expect I was kind of expecting it to be like. Oh, it's going to be the crocodile's going to be singing these kind of like jukebox classics that like um, Sony has in their kind of music archive. But like 
yeah, that that wasn't that didn't happen in the end. And the, the only kind of actual song he sings that is 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 a real is a pop song is is uh, Crocodile Rock, of course, by Elton John. I think I think its strengths is is its sincerity and the fact that they have this character in the basement who is a is he's called Mr. Grumps and he is a Grumps and he is the kind of I guess he's sort of the antagonist, but he doesn't really have anything. He's a sort of side player and. It doesn't really have anything to do with the plot. In fact, there isn't really a plot. The whole, the the, the, the antagonism, the, the the antagonist of the film is uh, crippling anxiety. As um, the whole uh, the whole plot is engineered around this idea that Hector Valente, played gamely by Javier Bardem, wants to use uh, Lyle to be to become to be to, to sort of break into into the showbiz industry and make loads of money but does so in a way that is like is he's not necessarily this kind of evil voracious you know talent talent agent type he's you know he he's in it for the for the for the for the fun and doesn't doesn't necessarily want to exploit Lyle and yeah he it, uh, the whole the whole plot is hinged on the idea that Lyle is too shy to to sing in front of an audience so he he's he's able to sing with this family and uh, he you know kind of endears himself to them in that way so just to, to clarify as well the crocodile can't talk so they, there's no sort of kind of conversation with the crocodile but when he when he wants to communicate he he bursts into song which you know the world would be a better place if 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 that was how human humans were were able to communicate but you know i digress Inés Joshua Mendes. No, it's very, very, very sweet film. I mean, it's, it's not, I don't think it's doing, necessarily doing anything that is like com- very radical. And uh, yeah, I agree. I think that the the effects are sometimes really good. There's the sort of nerdy, nerdy part of me was was very impressed in a sequence where Lyle wrestles with Scoo McNary in, a, in, in, a, in an attic. And the kind of, the, 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 the way it's filmed and the sort of interaction between the, the animated croc and, and Scoot McNary feels, you know, it's very authentic. You don't get a sense that he's got some like, you know, that he, that is cutting away to some like rubber figurine that he's sort of chucking around the room. So yeah, that, that on, on a kind of tech level, it's sort of, it, 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 it doesn't push the tech, tech stuff too far, but what it does, it kind of does, does well. Yeah. Sweet film. Yeah, I, I kind of uh, came into this morning thinking that like, oh, you know, that was actually significantly better than I expected. I didn't know the source material, uh, but I, I didn't have high hopes. But another bit of sad news is that Angela Lansbury has sadly just passed. And so I kind of spent a bit of my morning having a look at some old clips. And one of them was a bit of footage of her and Jerry Orbach singing be uh, be our guests together and i remembered that i went to this to review this thing at the wallace collection that was all about the influence of rococo art on disney and i just kind of ended up then feeling like you know crumbs our, our children are getting crumbs <laughs> compared to like the amount of talent and effort that went into like the stuff that i got to enjoy so angela lansbury's passing has only kind of illuminated to me just kind of how dire the state of kids films has really gotten it's true i think with pixar so so kind of massively off the boil lately that it's that situation is being compounded and i think you know maybe you know but look, looking looking at this from in the long view may, maybe a film like lyle lyle crocodile is probably getting you know this is uh this is the week of low expectations be, be being exceeded and that's and that's maybe that maybe extends to the culture at large, certainly in the in the realm of family films. 
Well, we should get some scores before uh, we get on to another little nostalgic treat. But uh, Josh, I know you weren't that excited to hear that this was the podcast you were going to be on. But um, what did you think in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Uh, Yeah, I'd say anticipation too, uh, purely because I, I just, I have no attachment to Lyles or Crocodiles or a combination of them enjoyment uh yeah i'd say free yeah very pleasantly surprised enjoyed a lot of the craft of the thing uh some of the performances and uh in retrospect i'd also say free yeah, it's a solid family film I, I i i'm not a parent so i cannot speak to its relation to the quality of most that are coming out lately like you you two can i'm sure but uh yeah i think this this is a nice little movie Echo, I echo those sentiments and those scores. So you don't even need to come to me. <laughs> yeah, probably two, three, two in uh, retrospect. But you know, that's the, shout the out Ange- to- Angela Lansbury thinking. Yeah, that's the there. Angela Lansbury effect. The Lansbury and, factor. You know, I mean, you know, it's it, it's uh, it's a very sad thing, um, even when it's someone the age of ninety six. But R.I.P. to an unproblematic fave. Next up, Film Club. Two teenage brothers move with their mother to a small town in Northern California. While the younger brother, Sam, meets a pair of kindred spirits in some geeky comic book nerds, the older, angst-ridden Michael catches the attention of a local gang of vampires. It's then up to Sam and his new friends to save Michael from the undead. David, so, I mean, I, I don't really know what the reception to The Lost Boys was at the time, but I think it, it's something that's, like, generally remembered fondly. Do you... Do you feel that way about it um no not not at all like i i i uh i I think i saw this when i was quite young maybe like late teens and yeah i don't i don't remember like having any great fondness for it this was at the age when you kind of like films like the lost boys you would end up watching like six seven eight times a year because you had it on vhs and your your kind of rotation was massively limited but even back then i i i'm pretty sure i only ever watched this once and was like okay i'm 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 fine with that but you know was coming back to it thinking okay you know joel schumacher has this sort of like maybe some of his reputation as a kind of you know style style director has has been lifted up I mean, I think there are people who think he's a bit he's a bit of a hack as well, and there are others who who have kind of reclaimed those late Batman films that he that he uh, that he directed, the, the kind of ultra camp ones. I, I I sort of bedded in on a on a on a, on a Friday night, bottle of wine, takeaway pizza, ready to ready to watch the Lost Boys, and yeah, it was just a gigantic disappointment on on every level, um, like a, a, a real like no evidence for me of like why this film is being celebrated for its 35th anniversary i mean i know that that might sound very very harsh i mean it's weird because this is this you know on paper this this you know we should have had the knives out for liar lyle and and halloween but and 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 been like being but few but thanks for the thank god for this like canonical uh, cult classic but no it's 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 flip reverse this week um where the, the cult classic is actually the one that is completely dire yeah so it's a vampire movie, 80s. Uh, it's like, it's got this kind of weird, like 80s soft rock hair metal vibe to the whole thing. Everyone looks like, uh, everyone looks like kind of hipster new romantic types. Um, you got Keith Sutherland with his little wispy white beard. 
and you've got Jason Patrick going around looking like a Levi's goon and and uh, you've got the dad from Gilmore Girls popping up as well. And yeah, there's all this kind of weird mythology and all these rules and all this all these things that they have to do. And then you've got Cor- the Corey Haim and Corey Feldman and, you know, they're just, they're just sort of connecting bits of plot together and nothing exciting really happens. And it's, you know, you've got all this kind of, there's lots of dry ice and lots of like guitar shredding and uh, bad effects and terrible script, terrible, terrible plot. No, I think this is one for the bin. This is, uh, yeah, put this on the trash fire. No 40th anniversary, no 50th anniversary. Let's let's erase this from the uh, the, the, the cultural consciousness. That's that's my take. <laughs> I I thought I liked this, and it's weird because we talk now about how kind of like things get just like down to a to, down to a meme or a, like a one perfect shot and what that's doing to cinema. But I think I think I only like the guy with the saxophone. Yeah. He's kind of playing topless. Yeah. And for some reason, through the prism of memory, I've extrapolated out that like that's kind of the vibe of the rest of it. So yeah, I watched it again this morning and like, Jesus Christ, it, it's not good at all. That, that The guy with the saxophone, actually, yeah, that was the sole moment of levity. So like it, early, right at the beginning of the film, there is this kind of like outdoor concert happening and all the, all the kids are like bopping along. And the camera zooms over to, to who's on stage. And it is like this, what looks like a kind of oiled WWF wrestler wearing like lycra, purple lycra pants, like going crazy on a, on a, on a sax. And he's got like crimped long back length hair. Uh, it's a guy called Tim Capello. Um, that's that's the name of the of the musician. There's actually, I think there's like if you if you Google him, there's actually like he's he's known as the kind of sexy muscle saxophonist of the eighties who had had some had some success as like a sideman for like you know he pl- he played like sax on various albums in the eighties and nineties, but has never sort of struck out as a as a lead. But yeah, he's become the kind of real true cult item legacy of this film. When I was invited onto this podcast, I thought I was going to be chased off with pitchforks because I have never liked this film when I've given it so many chances. So I'm pleasantly surprised to see that's not going to be the case, that I possibly have slightly less harsh words on it. I first saw this when I was 13 in a double bill with Hellraiser, uh, two films that you know, shouldn't have been watching at that time. Uh, but Hellraiser I now really like. It was just clearly a case of 13 is not the age to watch Hellraiser. But this one I struggled with at the time. I figured, oh, I was just a stupid kid. I rewatched it two Halloweens ago for it was still rubbish. I rewatched it again for this podcast. I, I just find it really flat. On paper, it should be a film I like a lot uh, based on various points that have already been brought up here. And I've been trying to pinpoint what it is that I don't care for. And I think part of that is actually rooted to looking into the behind the scenes history of it. So this was originally envisioned to be more of a family aimed movie to be directed by Richard Donner, who directed The Goonies and also did produce this film. Uh, but when he stepped down, uh, Joel Schumacher was approached to take it over. And when he came on board, he reportedly insisted to raise the ages of the characters. So like the kind of brooding teenage vampires and were meant to be a lot younger, maybe maybe 10 years old or something like that, maybe. like. And so you know, he got the screenwriter to revise the script, make it a bit, bit more adult uh, when it comes to like violence and sexual awakening and that sort of stuff. But... That sort of makes sense to the vibe I get from it, where I I don't think it escapes feeling like a kid's film that had adult elements bolted onto it. 
and I'm I'm not a fan of the Goonies. So like, if you tell me like, oh yeah, it's like the Goonies with vampires, it's, it's, it's like, no, <laughs> I, I, I'm not really into it. And on that note, I I I do struggle with Corey Feldman in this a lot. I'm not. I, oh, he's awful. I, I, he's I generally get what, awful. I get what he's doing. I think Corey Haim has a few moments, but I'm with you, Corey. Oh God. Yeah, yes, yeah, Corey uh, Feldman's yeah, terrible. Yeah, yeah, may he rest in peace. Yeah, Corey Haim is is is, is quite good in this. Um, I I, I will. In light of the negativity amongst us all, I will highlight a few things I do like uh, on this revisit. Uh, I do like the brotherly relationship between Jason Patrick and Corey Haim. I think that's quite sweet, uh, even if Patrick himself is a kind of a bit of a wet blanket at times. I like the dog drop kicking a vampire into a bath of holy water at one point. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was okay. And I like Jason Patrick's jumper in the last 20 minutes. Yeah. The Lost Boys, everyone. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the jumper. But I, I watched it with my wife, and we were, and she was like, "Going, when's this film going to actually start? When, when's something going to happen?" Because like you kind of introduced to Kiefer Sutherland right at the beginning, and then he kind of leaves the film for like an hour. You know, he's just this, you know, like you're, you're like, where, where, where's Kiefer? Yeah, I, clo- I, clo- I clocked it this time, and vampire teeth do not appear in the film until roughly the sixty-one minute mark, and this is a ninety-seven minute movie of credits. It's. Yeah. It, Saves it and, very late. Yeah, it's, it's other saving grace is the the ending does have a few nice kind of gore things where where it's it it it, it, it almost moves to sort of splatter territory for for a moment. But yes, yeah, it's, it's as much as those elements are good in isolation as a as a film as a singular piece. It just yeah, it's all over the place. Um, yeah, let's uh, yeah the campaign to 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 burn the negative <laughs> of, of the Lost Boys. I'm genuinely and, sad. And, re- and lis- listen, <laughs> listeners, listeners need to send because you know we have three dissenting voices here. So listeners absolutely need to send reasons why this film is considered the cult classic that it is. I would like to clarify: I do not encourage the burning of film negatives. But, um, I will, I will say, watch Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark instead. A much better young vampire film from 1987. Watch Street Trash instead. Where's that restoration? <laughs> Yeah, and what's the sorry? What's the uh, and what's the Tony Scott one with um, the hun- Bowie and the Hunger? Do you know the Hunger? Watch the Hunger instead as well. Yeah, like all of those are a thousand times better. People are not going to believe that we have praised Halloween ends more than the Lost Boys. No, although I would say, as much as I've said that um, Jamie Lee Curtis was terrible in Halloween Ends, and I stand by her, I will come for another actress and say Diane Weist is dire in this film. I was actually found it like upsetting. Well, I mean. She she's usually great, but she's just not given. You know, she's not really given anything to do here. So uh. I'm not undermining the talents. It's what she's been given to do. It's like absolutely horrendous, particularly that final scene. It really grated me. Anyway, um, I'm normally grateful to um, to come to a cult classics, but yeah, I'm kind of slightly annoyed with you, David, that you made me start my day watching this one. <laughs> But if you've got thoughts on these films or actually enjoyed The Lost Boys, email truthinmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Martin McDonough reunites Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson for The Banshees of Inner Sharon. Park Chan-wook makes the decision to leave. And on Film Club, one more Park Chan-wook with the audacious tale of revenge, old boy. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Josh Slater-Williams. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365 day returns.